Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addictive Pod. It's Adrian here, and I'm excited to share with you guys this conversation I had with a recovered alcoholic. My guest served his country as a Marine in Iraq, and then as a city councillor, before his alcoholism brought him to the point of suicide. This recovery story is about how you can still have faith after experiencing loss, how to be of service, and what really matters in life. Please join me in welcoming Nick Ibarra. Nick Ibarra, welcome to the Addictive Pod. So good to see you, man. Hey, you too, buddy. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. good. Um, hope you haven't been... Are you in, are you in Cali? No, I'm in Missouri, actually. Okay. Uh, so right in, smack dab in the middle of the U.S. Have you been having any crazy weather lately? Because I've been seeing what's uh, going on in Dallas. Yeah, absolutely. We had... Uh, so we had uh, about uh, six or eight inches of snow where I'm at. Uh, it got down to negative 12. So kind of like the normal day in Canada, right? Yeah. That's like uh, <laughs> Toronto weather. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so it was, it was pretty cold, but, uh, I live, I live in a, a metropolitan area or a, a city. And so, uh, the roads weren't too bad once you got off the side streets. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you, man. I know like we've talked a little bit before and your story has so many elements. Like you're, you're in the military, you transition into like, um, you, you even ran for city council and then you were transitioned into bodybuilding as well. Um, but I think the first thing that I would ask you on, like on seeing sort of an outline of your life a little bit is, um, what was it like growing up, man? Like what, what was going through your head growing up and what, what motivated you to do some of these things? Well, uh, I think that's a good question. So what I always what I always explain to people is that for the first 13 years of my life, um, I had a normal childhood. My mom and my dad were together, um, lived in a nice neighborhood, had a normal lifestyle, played sports. Dad was the coach on my on my sporting teams, football, soccer, uh, baseball, all that stuff. And then um, and so you know, it was just normal childhood up until the time I was 13, which my father passed away uh, from cancer. And then um, so within six months after my father passing away, my brother passed away. I was 13. Wow. He was 10. Um, we were riding bikes and he got hit by a diesel truck. Oh and God. so so my father passing away, it was kind of expected because he'd been sick for several years. My brother passing away was an immediate thing, very traumatic. Um, and after that, my mom, uh, my mom got heavily uh, into drugs. Uh, just I guess that's the way she decided to deal with things for several years. Um, and, uh, and so for me, I think that the pivoting point of, of my story from a normal childhood to uh, a crazy childhood was when my brother and my father passed away. I, I ended up in foster care. Uh, I was a teenage parent. And so for a lot of it, it was just survival mode. And one of the coping mechanisms, um, was, was smoking a lot of weed and, and drinking, um, my fair share. And then, um, and then, uh, once I was able to get out of, uh, the situation I was in, uh, was as soon as I graduated high school and I went into the Marines. And so, uh, back to the full circle to your question, um, the, the quick answer is I was just in survival mode for, yeah. for 13 to 18. I was just about how can I make it to the next day? Wow. And, and you saw that happen. Like you were biking with your brother when that happened. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, wow. uh, it was, it was, uh, it was a pretty messy situation. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear, man. Rest in peace. Um, and um, going, joining the Marines, what was, so was part of that motivation just to get out of the situation? Basically, I'm in this foster system, the Marines <laughs> offers me a way out or yeah. what else was well, there? 
Yeah. So, so I was, I was in foster care for a while. Uh, I ended up going back with my mom after she had kind of straightened her life up enough to be a parent. But, but the idea that I was in foster care is, I I think plays a role in it just because there's a lot of people that, that have been through foster care. And so one of the ways that I can say, you know, I've been there is that I was in foster care. It wasn't for an extended period of time. It wasn't until I got out of high school. I did end up going back with my mom. Uh, but the, the Marines, uh, was, uh, was a choice that I made. I'd always wanted to be in the military. My dad was in the Navy. My grandfather, both my grandfathers were in the army. Um, well, one grandfather was in the air force before it was the air force. It was called the army air Corps. So it was kind of the air force before it was the air force. Uh, And then another grandfather in the army, my mom was in the Navy. So I came from a long lineage of of military service. And, um, and, um, I just always felt that the Marines looked the most sharp in their uniforms. And so that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> right on, man. Right on. So um, when did, how did, how did alcohol and drugs play into your uh, service in the military? Was that, did this continue or did it, was it on hold for a while? Cause I think yeah. in basic, like it's pretty hard to access some of it when you're in training, yeah. right? Well, when, when you're in boot camp, well, um, when, when I made, when I, when I enlisted to go into the military, I knew that, you know, I had to kind of straighten up and stop partying so much, yeah. uh, you know, my last year in high school, but then, uh, yeah, correct. In boot camp, you're, you're essentially on lockdown. So it was, it, there was nothing at that point in time. Um, when I got out of boot camp and I started getting to my different duty stations, uh, I drank with all the other guys, uh, doing my own thing. Um, uh, whenever they weren't there, I drink on my own. Um, and at the same time, there was not, you know, 80% of the time there were other people there drinking. Uh, what I didn't realize in that whole scenario is that there was a certain, certain couple guys on Monday, certain couple guys on Tuesday, certain couple guys on Wednesday and so on. But I was always there and right. I was always drinking, you know, right. um, it wasn't just regard- a weekend thing for you. This became, right. yeah, no, that's correct. And, um, and so, um, I think that, um, I, I was, I would say, more than a casual drinker, I wouldn't say it was a complete problem until I came back from overseas. Um, I, I ended up going overseas to Iraq in 2005. And, uh, and when I came back, um, you know, when I was in Iraq, I was with a military police unit. We did convoys. I did 47 convoys, um, every, you know, some of the more difficult parts of Iraq at the time. And so I saw my fair share of, uh, of really sad things. Um, and with that being said, when I came home, I didn't deal with it. I just went on like nothing had happened. Uh, and, and that's when I really started masking everything with alcohol. Uh, and it did become, uh, you know, seven days a week, uh, 24 hours a day. I was either one hungover or two on my way to getting intoxicated. Did you stay in touch with some of the people that you served with in Iraq? Did that, was that, uh, something that you guys would, um, ever talk about together or was it basically like okay that happened we're just gonna pretend like that didn't happen anymore yeah so so when i came back from iraq uh, facebook and social media was just starting to kick off um and so it wasn't a big thing but it was a thing and so i would keep in touch with some buddies uh and and we would post things or share things and we'd say you know i remember that night that was a rough night but that was kind of all that was ever said right and so uh it, there was the there was the camaraderie in that we didn't really have to talk about what happened, but we all knew what we were talking about. Uh, but at the same time, um, I had been I when I went overseas, I was attached to a unit out of uh, out of Minnesota, 
And so I was, you know, six, 700 miles away from the rest of my, the rest of my buddies that I was overseas with. And so when I came home, I came straight back to Missouri. And so I was detached from all those guys. And so I was, I was alone, you know? Uh, And so while I did keep in touch with them, it wasn't, you know, go visit them on the weekend kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't have that same level of connection where you can kind of open up and say like, man, that really fucked me up. What happened that day? Right. It's just, uh, yeah. Um, cause I know that there are, it's similar to recovery meetings where they have groups for vets that can get together and, um, help each other to, um, sort of recover from things that happened. But, um, yeah, I can see how that would be really isolating if you're coming back to Missouri and nobody else that you served with is there. Um, right. did you, how did you transition back? Were you working, um, sort of a, a Joe job or what did you get into once you were back? Yeah. So once I came back, uh, I started working as a, as a sales rep with an industrial products company selling tank truck hoses. Um, and, uh, went back to school. I had started school before I went overseas, went back to school, ended up graduating. Uh, and that's when I did get into politics, probably about two years after, uh, after I got home from overseas is when I started becoming involved in the local political scene. That's really cool. So did you, did you sort of have the motivation of, um, I want to like make things better. Like this is sort of a, another opportunity for me to sort of really drive myself and make things better. Or what was, what was motivating you to go that route? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think that the, that the driving factor was that underneath it was the, Hey, I have a new way to fight the good fight and mm-hmm. do better. And, 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 you know, I served my country on a national level. Now I can do it on a local level. Um, and so I did start getting involved with politics uh, at the local level, ended up running for city council in 2008 and early 2009. And I won that election. So I was on city awesome, council. Um, and, and at that point in time, I was one of the more outspoken people. My, you know, there was the majority of people that felt one way politically. Uh, and then there were two or three of us on a nine man city council that felt the opposite way. And so a lot of times I was in the minority with my opinion. Uh, and so, um, a lot of times I had to be outspoken, uh, because I was representing a group of people in the community that may have been the minority, but that doesn't mean that it still wasn't 49% of the people, if that makes right, sense. Right. Um, I'm kind of jumping ahead here to recovery, but sure. I'm just thinking, while well, sure. I'm thinking of it, there's, there's this saying in AA and in other recovery groups, and there's, it's in the big book as well about, um, I can't quote it verbatim, but it's basically about um, not trying to, we didn't fight anything, even alcohol. Yeah, we stopped fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what's your what's your views of that now? Like, do you still, um, now that you're in recovery, do you still have that motivation to continue to fight that good fight for your city or for your country? Or is it more, um, has, that, has that changed in recovery for you? Uh, I, I think it has changed in recovery from the aspect of um, when almost the opposite of what you said, if I understand what you're saying correctly, and if I remember that part of, of the big book correctly, it's, I, w- I would say I was almost the opposite because rather than in addiction. stopping fighting, yeah, in addiction, exactly. yeah, all I did was fight. All I exactly. did was fight people. All I did was uh, be the adversary in almost everything I did. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that in recovery, what I have found is, is that, um, I was very angry at the time. I was, I was, uh, angry at myself, uh, as much as anything or, or upset, depressed, uh, and dealing with a lot of, uh, uh, emotions that, um, 
stem back to my childhood, to my dad and my brother, and, and just continued to build on. My mom was on drugs. I was in foster care. I was a teenage parent. I went to war. And all these things had happened that, in all reality, any one of those alone could be traumatizing. So you stack them all up together, and you have a, you have a really jacked up individual. Yeah. <laughs> you have a really jacked up individual. And so I think in recovery, what I found was that those are things that happened to me. Those are not me. Mm, and, mm-hmm. and so I can accept those things as, as being events in my life that occurred that are now part of my past that can build who I am, but they don't have to be who I am. If mm. that makes sense. Man, you, you read my, I asked that question so badly, but you read my mind. Like that's exactly what I was sort of trying to say about the way you're describing being in the army and going into politics, being very outspoken, right? It's it that go, go. Sorry, in the Marines, sorry. Uh, <laughs> totally different. Yeah, yeah, sorry, man. Um, uh, and um, yeah, there's that go-go mentality, change the mm-hmm. world, fight, mm-hmm. fight what's unjust, right? Which is good right. in a sense, but I think when it doesn't have, when it doesn't come from a place of peace, when it comes from a place of turmoil and a place of chaos and, and trauma, that can only lead you to one place i think and and i want to hear about that like about where addiction started to lead you when did it start to uh cause like dysfunction in your life absolutely so um so like i I came home from iraq in the end of 2005 and i would say that my drinking really picked up not very long after that um 2006 it went on 2007 2008 2009 drinking seven days a week i think in in the course of four or five years i had literally gone a sum total of about two weeks of non-drinking days. Wow. And um, towards the end, I, I was married. I had two kids. I lived in an okay part of town. I owned my own home. I had a good job. I was a college graduate. And so people would say, man, I think you have a drinking problem. I think you really need to think about what you're doing. Uh, and, and what I didn't see was that my family was collapsing around me. My, my kids were having behavioral issues. My marriage was falling apart. Uh, all these things were happening. And, and I just didn't see it because the way I looked at it is, who the fuck are you to tell me how to behave when these are all the things I've gone through and I'm still a college graduate and I still serve my country and I'm still on city council and yeah. I have all these accomplishments that you don't have. So who are you to tell me what to do, right? Yeah. And, um, and so... Um, I guess that for as as driven as I was, like you said, it was for the it, it was with the wrong spiritual intent, and and I didn't realize it. But it, you know, it was one of those things that I think that I think God had to slap me really hard in the face in order to get me to see oh, that yeah. I was in the wrong in so many ways in my life. So um, my my rock bottom uh, came in the in the course of five weeks and two events. Um, I had separated from my wife at the time um, and we were living in a separate home. Um, And on Thanksgiving day of 2011, I was headed back. I had eaten dinner with my family, uh, my mom and my stepdad, that family. And, um, and I was headed back home to to the house, to our marital residence. And I was going to get the kids, my kids who are now 23 or 22 and 20. uh, But at the, you know, we're talking nine years ago. And on the way back, somebody cut me off in traffic. And so I decided to cut them off in traffic. And it became this thing across, you know, this this event across town where we were cutting each other off and acting complete, acting like complete idiots on the yeah. road. And uh, and what turned out happening was uh, I finally got them at a red light 
And I got out of the car and I said, hey, man, why don't you watch how you're driving? Well, it was a young kid. He was 19, 20 years old. And he said, if you have a problem with how I'm driving, why don't you come talk to my dad? What I should have thought was this should be the first red flag if he's inviting me to go talk to his dad. What I thought at the time was, well, I have a kid that's almost old enough to drive. And if he was driving like this, I would want to know about it. So I follow this kid home and, um, and uh, I get out and I go talk to his dad. And, it's, and actually what happens is his dad and what ends up being his uncle and him surround me in a semicircle. Oh. And, uh, and I say, you know, hey, I'm not trying to start anything. I'm just trying to say, hey, you know, this guy's acting like an idiot on the road. The kid who I stopped on the road punched me in my face. So then I thought, okay, this is not going to turn out how I expected it to turn out. So I start to get back in my car. And um, ironically enough, and, and whether or not, I, I think there's a, a lot of people who believe me, a lot of people who take my word for it, and a lot of people who question my, my uh, honesty in this. But the honest truth is, is at that specific time, I was not intoxicated. Um, had I had a few drinks throughout the day? Yes, I had. Um, but... I get back in my car and I had a six pack of beer, Sam Adams, uh, cherry wheat, I believe it was, but I had a six pack of beer in my car and one of the family members started climbing in my car, trying to pull the keys out of my car, telling me that I wasn't going anywhere because I had alcohol in the car and that they were calling the police. And I said, you know, that's fine. You call the police. I'm calling the police as well, but I'm getting out of here. You guys are trying to jump me. And then the uncle, the, the third person that was present, he started climbing on my car. So I put the car in reverse and I started backing up. And all I remember is that these people were not getting off my car. So I sped up and sped up and sped up. Well, if you have any experience driving really fast in reverse, um, you know, it's, it, you, you wibble wobble real quick if you, if you turn the wheel just a little bit. So I, I turned the wheel a little bit and I wibble wobbled. I, I don't even know if that's a term, but um, I, I, kind of lost a little bit of control and slammed into a brick mailbox. And then all of a sudden there was nobody on my car. And I thought, okay, they got off my car. And so I left, I called 911 and uh, the operator, um, the operator said, well, we have the other party on the other line. And apparently you ran somebody into a brick mailbox. And, uh, and I thought, well, I didn't even run into a mailbox. What had happened though was, um, when I hit the mailbox, the person that was on the side of my car had slammed into it because it was on the side that he was on. Um, and, and, um, so I went home or I went back to my mom's house actually. And, um, and the police came out, took a statement. Now, during that time that they took the statement, they had explained to me that the party that I had been in the altercation with claimed that they had lost a cell phone and keys. And they asked if they could go through my car. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll go through my car for, for you if you want. So I go through my car and as I'm getting out, uh, I notice one of the little airplane shooters, you know, the little 99 cent, I don't know if they have them in Canada, but little 99 cent bottles, like, like, like a little plastic bottle of, you can get yeah. soon off. You can, okay. Yeah. They attach them so, to other bottles and like as a promo okay. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, so like at, at liquor stores here, you could, they have them in little tubs up front and they're 99 cents yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, so my tradition daily after work would be to get two airplane shooters that I could drink on the way home to make the shakes go away or to make the ickiness go away till I could get home and start drinking. And so I would keep them in my side compartment of my car. So as the police are going, so fast forward back to Thanksgiving day, 
as the police are asking me to go through my car, I noticed one of them still in my side pocket. So I try and slip it up the sweater I was wearing and the police officer caught me. So out of that, the, the big story is out of that is I got two counts of assault. The, the two guys that were on my car both got hurt. And uh, so there were my two counts of assault. And then for the little airplane shooter vodka bottle, I got a count of tampering with evidence. Um, so that was the first instance of, or that, that was the first episode of two situations that I went through. So um, five weeks later, I stayed, I was on city council at the time. I stayed on city council, went to a few meetings, continued to go to work um, and, and continued to try and live life like nothing had happened. And I think that that was my first big mistake uh, outside of following this kid home. Um, <clears throat> so uh, tried to go on like nothing had happened and then came New Year's Day. Uh, so New Year's Day of 2012, I uh, woke up and I was hungover because I had been drinking at the bars before the night before. So I decided that I was going to go get a bottle of wine and some beers and whatever I wanted. And I was at, I was at my house alone, uh, started drinking over a series of texts and over several hours with my wife that I had been separated from. We ended up getting in a huge argument. Uh, and she, she came to the house where I was staying uh, because it was our marital residence. She still had stuff there. And she came in and she said, I'm going to take a shower and then I'm leaving again. I never understood why she came back to the house for as big of an argument as we were in and for the fact that she wasn't staying there at the time. So I never really understood why she came back to the house. But nonetheless, she came back to the house. We got in this huge argument. And I remember thinking that I wanted her to feel the same amount of fear in her that I had anger in me. I wanted her to feel what I was feeling through fear, even though what I was feeling was anger. And, and I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I was thinking. So I took a gun and I loaded it. <clears throat> I put a, a round in the chamber and I pointed it at her and I started screaming at her that I was in control. I said, you, you know, you think you're in fucking control. You're not in control. I'm in control. She, I just remember her crying and, um, and, um, and then I thought, you know, I am, I'm so fucking tired right now. I'm just tired. And I don't mean physically tired. I meant emotionally and psychologically, uh, spiritually, just tired. And I put the gun in my mouth and I started to squeeze the trigger back. And for whatever reason, I thought you grew up without a dad. Don't do that to your kids and don't leave your mom with no kids. And I put the gun down, I unloaded it, I put it down, I went in the living room, I opened the front door uh, because I knew the police were coming at that point. I opened the front door and uh, I sat down and I drank, a, uh, I drank my last drink, it was, it was a glass of Shiraz wine. Uh, and I waited for the police to show up and they showed up, uh, arrested me and took me to jail. And um, for those two instances, uh, I was all over the news because I was on city council, which was so far beyond embarrassing and saddening that, that, that like this is this is what my life had become at that point. Yeah. And I remember thinking in that jail cell that night on New Year's Day of 2012, I am a good person. I have a good heart. I mean well. I want to do well. But every single thing I'm doing in life is the opposite of that. And that's when I knew that who I had been versus who I knew I was in my heart 
were two totally different people. Wow. And, um, and that was the last time I drank. January 2nd of 2012 was my day one, my white chip day. And, uh, and I have not had a drink since then. Wow, man. Congrats on, um, appreciate that. Is that, is that eight years or nine? Uh, nine, nine, nine years, years. Wow. nine years a month and some change. It's awesome, man. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think, um, it's insane. Like both, both instances, especially the instance with the driving, right? It's just, yeah. you would never, you would never picture yourself in that scenario. You would never be like, right. Oh, if I drink too much, I'm going to end up in that scenario where I'm driving right. a kid into a right. mailbox. It's like, right. you would, it's just crazy. Um, but right. stuff like that happens when hurt people are, are like up against each other and trying to be right, you know? Um, right. and wow, I'm really grateful that on that day, like was your wife in the room when you had your gun in the mouth or was this? Yeah. She watched you as well. Yeah. It, you know, um, at my, so, so your ex-wife, uh, sorry. Yeah. Ex-wife. Uh, so because the, for, for that, for that situation, I did get unlawful use of a weapon. Um, and so <clears throat> I was looking at a whole lot of time in, in jail, yeah. uh, or in prison. And, um, and I'll never forget there, there, there are things that I, I remember vividly. And one of them was, is that my sentencing whenever, so I went through two years of the legal process hearings and, uh, you know, interviews, different things. Um, I had to wear an ankle, uh, alcohol monitor on my ankle. I had to do, you know, random breath tests, all kinds of different stuff. I think in the end, I ended up paying $15,000 over the course of two years between attorney's fees and alcohol monitor fees, all that different stuff. Um, but then finally at my sentencing, which is, uh, at the point I, I pled guilty, I said, you know, I'm not going to argue this. I've, I've done wrong. Um, and, and so I'm going to plead guilty so that I don't have to do a trial. Uh, and they got to do victim impact statements. So anybody who had been, who had been the victim of the things that I had done, got to speak to the judge and kind of give their statement. And so, um, one of the gentlemen from the Thanksgiving day incident, he spoke in, in, um, was actually very kind in what he said it wasn't he needs to be punished or anything it was more of he needs help and i hope he gets the help he needs mm -hmm. um but one of the things that i'll never forget is kara my uh my first wife um i remember her giving her statement and she cried and she said the nick that i saw on that day was not my husband it, it, he it, that was somebody i did not know yeah. and um and you know one thing that i have learned through recovery has been through example and it's been through her example is that I drank my way through our marriage with her or th through my marriage with her. I treated her horribly. I was a cheater. I was a liar. I hid money and I was a drunk. I was just a drunk. Okay. Um, I didn't treat my kids very well and all of that she has forgiven me for. Mm. And, and when I say forgiven me for, it's not like, Hey, I forgive you. Have a nice life. It's, I forgive you and I'm going to invite you over to holiday dinner so that mm. our kids can have both parents. Wow. I'm, you know, we talk regularly on the phone oh and God. I truly say that we're better friends now than, um, than we were the entire time we were married. And so to come full circle, I've been forgiven for so much just by her. Who the hell am I to not forgive exactly. anybody for anything they do to me? Exactly. If that makes sense. And, uh, and so um, I still regularly thank her for her forgiveness, uh, just because I'm so grateful for it, not just for it in and of itself, but for the lesson it taught me. Wow, man. Well, I, I feel grateful too. I mean, there are thousands of 
men, thousands of men who are in prison for domestic assault, for murder, for, and then thousands of people who commit suicide, right? And that could have been you for either of those instances. Absolutely. So um, the fact that you came that close to that edge and then were able to take a step back in that moment and then you had someone in your life who was able to forgive you for that and people in your life who gave you a chance, I mean, man, like I wouldn't have you on this podcast. I wouldn't be talking to you right now and learning from you if it wasn't for that moment. So I just feel like so grateful for that. And um, yeah, I want to hear more about like, where did you go from there? And when did, was it, um, was it the 12 steps that was, that eventually started to help you? Or was it some type of uh, rehab facility that you went to first? How did that play out? So immediately after I got out of jail, um, after New Year's, I got out on the, on the night of the 2nd of January, 2012, um, went to my AA meeting the very next day. And for five years, I went to uh, AA meetings faithfully. And um, there was nothing that happened that, that I stopped going to AA meetings for. Uh, and, and if there was any one thing is my sponsor passed away uh, from a stroke, actually. Mm. Um, but, uh, but it kind of like, I, my life had started going in this direction to where I think AA is a wonderful thing. And I think it helps a lot of people. And I think it helps a lot of people for two years, some people for five years, some people for 10 years, some people for 75 years. Okay. But for me, it came to this point to where my life was taking off in this different direction uh, that it was like, okay, AA has served its purpose for me. And the things I've learned in AA, I will always have with me. There are still parts of the book that I may not remember verbatim, but I remember um, the concepts. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and I still carry those with me, but my life started taking off in a different direction. And I said, this is okay. You know, it's okay because this direction that it's going in is a super positive direction. And that, and that direction was bodybuilding. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, one thing I tell, uh, you know, I, I do do bodybuilding. I've competed in three shows. I got my pro card so I can compete professionally, uh, a few things like that. But my passion is helping other people. And so I'm also a personal trainer and I have a a business where I train both general population clients and bodybuilding clients. But I love my favorite clients to have, whether they're general population or bodybuilding or recovering addicts, because I say, look, I'll say, you have the same mentality I have. And that is, let's go full force, whether it's into a bottle of whiskey or whether it's into a gym, we have that almost uh, obsessive personality. And if we take that obsession and gear it towards the right thing, we can do some amazing fucking things. Exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a different mentality, man, to have that, um, to have that one track mind and to have that drive. I mean, it's, um, I can, I can totally see how you became successful in these other spheres. And I like, I see what you're doing right now with the bodybuilding, uh, mm-hmm. the business that you're building and it's mm-hmm. uh it's awesome to watch man i'm really i'm excited to see what the future has for you in that and um was was bodybuilding something that you were into when you were in the marines and even earlier or was this um was this after you came into recovery yeah so uh i i've always been even in my darkest days of, of drinking i would always make it to the gym at five in the morning Wow. Um, sometimes I was still Jeez. half wasted. Yeah. Sometimes I was still half wasted. <laughs> That's some drunk workout sessions. Man. <laughs> yeah. 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 There, there were a few. Uh, and, and sometimes I kept my distance from people because I knew I probably reeked <laughs> a shit, but I, I've always worked out, uh, as far back as, as being 18, 20 years old. 
Um, and then when I got done, when, when I got done serving in the service, I, tar- I started taking the gym part serious. Uh, but what I tell my clients is that bodybuilding or true lifestyle change with regards to fitness, 70% of it is in the kitchen. Uh, it's about nutrition. It's about being, yeah. say, being able to say no to the bad stuff and yes to the stuff that might not taste the greatest, but we know it's doing something good for us. Um, and that, and I started taking that seriously uh, probably around 2018, 2017. Oh, wow. So um, fairly recent, actually. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so the gym part has always been a part of my life. The nutrition part, I knew how to eat good, but I never took it serious until, you know, four or five years ago. Well, yeah. I guess four or three. Man, that makes a hell of a difference. I mean, you go from putting a toxic substance into your body every day to now focusing on putting good substances into your body, like yeah. the change for your mental health, especially like that's got to be big. Um, absolutely. When you approach bodybuilding, because before we talked about um, the drive that you had and almost this sense of like um, fixing an injustice or, or really like putting yourself um, in a very challenging situation, is it different now with building your business or is it the same type of drive that you had before? Uh, I think I think the, the, the amount of drive is the same, absolutely the same, if not even stronger because I'm sober and, and I have my wits about me and, and I can focus a lot better, obviously. Yeah. Um, and, and as we all know, but um, the, the purpose behind it, I think, is a lot different because I feel like when I post things like I posted this past week that we talked about before the show started, said, hey, I went through this in, 20, yeah. in 1994. I went through this in 2000. I went through this in 2012. I went, went through all these things. And you know what I did? I overcame them all. And in doing that, I feel that the reason God had me put that gun down or the reason that God told the judge, give this guy a little less than 22 years in prison. And the reason that all these things fell into line is that maybe I can change just one person's life in the sense of look at all these things I've overcome. Look at, look at the good I've done. And, and I was sitting in a jail cell, my name smeared in the media and when I got done with it all, I was making minimum wage at a part-time job, working my working my hands raw. Mm-hmm. And yet, in nine years of sobriety, I've got to a place to where I'm making more than the average attorney in town. I live on a good side of town. I've rebuilt a new family, still have the relationship with my ex-wife and my, and my other children. Mm-hmm. I have all these things, but it was because I was focused on doing good and for the right reasons. That's beautiful. And it's, and, and it's never too late. I mean, I, I started yeah. I started that journey in my late thirties. Um, you mentioned God a couple of times, and I have I have a pretty tough question for you, but I think it's a question that anyone who believes in God has to face at some point in their journey. And absolutely the, the question is, how do you reconcile the God that allows your brother and father to pass away and for the things that happened in Iraq that allows those things mm-hmm. to happen with mm-hmm. the God who blesses you today? I think that is a difficult question, but I also think that um, when we look at life, you and I, we look at life as everything. And I think that God looks at life in the bigger picture as yet a blip on the radar. Like we, like, you know, some people believe in pre-mortal existence. Some people Mm. believe in reincarnation. Some people believe that you just live once. And then after that, you're dead and your spirit ascends or descends. But, and I'm going to back up intentionally, but if we look at the entire line of time, right, from beginning of man to end of man, we are right here, just this little tiny part. And if we're right here, everything after 
is our spiritual journey after this life. And so I think that we see life in a very different Mm. lens than God sees life because God sees the big picture. We only see what we see for the 75 or a hundred years that we're here. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Yeah. So with our limited view, some of these things can seem unjust. Some of these things can seem um, wrong and evil. Um, right. But with a bigger picture view, this, I mean, right now we, we will never really know. Like from our, right. from our human Absolutely. perspective, we just, we can't Absolutely. fathom it. Absolutely. And, and spot on. 100%. Yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a good perspective to have. And I think um, there's a sense of, and this is, this is big in the 12 steps as well. There's a sense of, uh, of our own powerlessness, right? Of, Absolutely. Um, of, yeah, we're, we're limited. And anyone who has addiction gets face to face with that limitation, right? Like you've, you hit that wall really hard. Um, what's your, what's your spiritual life like? So when you, um, when you go about your day-to-day stuff today, how does, how does higher power or God play into your day-to-day, um, routines? Okay. So when, when I, uh, when I first, um, when I first got out of incarceration, I was very spiritual. I was very involved in church. Uh, I ended up being, uh, put in a leadership position and, uh, and some things happen with the church itself that, um, I, I strongly disagreed with. And I, I was fully aware that, that man is capable of mistakes and man does his best to represent God when they're doing things for a pure reason and they're put in a leadership position at church. And so it didn't take away from my, my, um, relationship with God, but I did stop going to church. And I struggle with that on a regular basis about whether I should go back or not, but that doesn't change my relationship with God. My relationship with God, could I be better? Absolutely. Uh, but but uh, I think that my, my understanding of I should pray more and I should be more aware of how I'm behaving because he's watching and, and all the concepts that were taught in church, those still follow me. And I think we can always be better. Um, but, but, uh, if it comes to my day-to-day relationship with God, um, it's, I, I don't even know necessarily how to explain it besides, is it lacking? Yes, it is. But is it there? Yes, it is. That's a, that's a really honest response, man. Thank you. It was hard, um, actually, <laughs> I, I, really, I have to openly admit that my relationship with God could be better. And I know it, you know? No, I really appreciate the honesty. And I think that's, um, I relate to that a lot, actually, especially with about uh, your your experience with church. Um, mm-hmm. I think with COVID, with uh, in Toronto, most churches just went online. So they'd be right. recorded on Sundays. And I saw, I, I, I viewed a few of them. Um, but definitely not on a weekly basis. And I've been in touch with a lot of my friends in that community. And I still, um, like you said, I think the relationship with God and the relationship with what some people will just say higher power, um, it's, um, it, it goes beyond any one church and any one AA meeting. It's incredibly, incredibly, uh, bigger than something we might experience in a group of people. Right. Um, So yeah, I really like the honesty in your response there. And I, I wish you the best as you continue with that. Cause I think it's like it, if it comes down to it, I'd say it's like the most important part of recovery, um, is that, um, is that experience or that connection, at least in my experience and the people that I talk to, I think that's probably for me, the most important thing in my recovery. Um, but another thing about recovery I wanted to hear from you is how do you, with, whether it's in your business or whether it's in your family, I've seen 
how you post on Facebook, the way you talk about service, right? Being of service, showing up and like putting in that, putting in that work. What is, mm. what does service mean to you now? And how does that play a part of your life? Absolutely. So I, I'm very much of, of the, uh, a lot of people think, well, I won't say a lot of people, but I have experienced people that will seem to have the perception that if I'm doing something good for myself, somebody else is suffering because of that. Um, and, and I'm a firm believer that there is mutual benefit to doing things for good purposes. So if I'm trying to build, we'll take the business thing, for example, if I'm trying to build a business. My purpose is to make money and my purpose is to make more enough money to support my family, to not have to rely on government assistance, to be able to, to make sure that my kids go uh, with the things that they need, with the necessities. And at the same time, how do I make that happen? I make that happen by helping other people reach their goals. And those goals can be in fitness. I, you know, they want to look better in the mirror. They want to have a, enough weight loss to be able to get off their diabetes and high blood pressure medicine. They want to be able to work on their movements enough to not have to take the pain medication they have to take, those kinds of things. And so when, it talk, when we talk about being of service, I'm a firm believer that if I help other people achieve their goals, goodwill will come back towards me. And so in a sense, it's selfish. And in a sense, it's um, service to others because I believe in karma. I believe that if I do good things for other people, it will naturally come back to me. And I believe in bad karma too. I mean, if you, if you spend your life treating people like crap, at some point in time, you're going to find yourself in a really bad situation and have nobody to call. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And I've been there for sure. Yeah. If uh, anybody in addiction has been there, man, I think, yeah. um, when you live that selfish life, you just end up alone. There's nothing, yeah. there's nothing for you at the end of that life. Um, and, um, yeah, it's beautiful to watch what you're doing, man. It's beautiful to see some of the stuff you're working on. Um, where do you see the future of this business? Do you see, um, I know that you're really big into the nutrition side. Do you see growing mm -hmm. that more or is it more about growing the, the client base? Like what's your goals for this, uh, this part of your life? Yeah. So for a little background, I've been in the legal, I, I actually have two full-time jobs, right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. You're saying. One, yeah. One of them is in, one of them is in fitness. It's my own, it's the business I have. And the other one is as a paralegal or a legal aid uh, for a law firm. Um, and I've been doing that for three years, three years. I've been getting up at three forty-five in the morning and going 110% till nine thirty at night. Wow. Um, and, and I'm finally at a place to where the last day of April is my last day uh, at the law firm that I've been at for several years, Congrats, and I'm going to focus on building my business. And, and when we talk about, um, is it going to be nutrition or building the client base? I mean, I think building the client base is going to be a natural product of me offering a good service to people. And a, a, a part of that service is my philosophy about life, about, about, uh, uh, a lifestyle change or, or a healthy lifestyle. And that, and nutrition falls into that part. It's about nutrition. It's about exercise. It's about having healthy relationships with your family, your coworkers, your friends. Uh, and it's about just having, creating a good atmosphere around you uh, because I am a firm believer that birds of a feather flock together. You create what's around you. Mm -hmm. Awesome, man. Um, I wanted to go back. I had this question when you were talking about early recovery, but uh, I got caught up in another train of thought, but I, I wanted to hear what you think about um, someone who's living that life that you were describing, right? They're drinking on their way back from work. They're drinking every day, but they haven't hit that moment. They haven't hit that day where they 
um, really face the wall of that powerlessness and realize they're, they're about to lose it all. Right. Um, what, what, what would you say to them? What would you give advice about? Because people like that, they might listen to a podcast here and there, but continue on in their addiction. Um, is there anything that you would want them to hear from you? Yeah, absolutely. Whether it is tonight that you hit that rock bottom or whether it's in 10 years that you hit that rock bottom, know that the rock bottom is the rock bottom. And the only way after that is the way back up. And that way back up can be much higher than you can ever imagine. I mean, if you would have told me nine years ago when I was sitting in a jail cell or being smeared on the newspapers or in the media that one day I would uh, uh, be getting a call from the same news stations to do segments on fitness or be, or, or have clients that I was putting on a bodybuilding stage because we had done amazing things with their fitness, I would have never believed you. But uh, it is possible and anything is possible as long as you set your mind to it. And, and, and for those people that are about to hit rock bottom or don't, or, or have plenty of time before they do, whenever that happens, know that it's not the end. Know that it's quite frankly, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of a new life. Man, and it's a beautiful life, man. I see it in you. I see it like in this conversation, just hearing from you and the way you talk about things. And um, it's uh, it's something that I really hope for everybody. You know, this is my motivation yeah. for this podcast. Me too, it's man. really me too. It's it's possible. I think like people like you are the rare ones. Maybe like the five or one percent of of people that are able to serve, uh, able to get out of this type of life. But um, I think it could be more. I really think it could be more than that if, if more people sort of hear this type of message and more people uh, learn about addiction and learn about um, the fact that, yeah, that trauma is real and that you need to recover from these underlying things. Um, yeah, it's been awesome having you on, man. I really appreciate everything that you've talked about. And um, where, can, where can people find you? Where can people learn more about your, uh, your fitness stuff and the nutrition stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can find me on uh, on Instagram. I'm at Nick Ibera uh, underscore 180 squad, 180 squad um, on Facebook, just Nick Ibera. Um, and then on uh, on regular website, my website is www.ift180.com. And uh, those, are, those are three main, main places to find me. Adrian, I appreciate you having me on. I know we had a lot of... Uh, uh, cross wires in the beginning for lack of a better term and most yeah. of those cross wires were my fault i'll take the no blame. man it was both <laughs> of us it was it was broken but, uh, telephone man yeah it, it was something going on man man but um but i really appreciate you having me on and i really enjoyed this yeah me too man i i had a feeling that it was gonna be worth it and hell yeah it was worth it i'm glad Good. we did I'm it i'm glad i'm glad yeah. man i all wish right, you all man. the best man and we got hey, to too, uh man. we got to stay in touch i want to pick your brain later about some workout stuff for sure man for sure have a great weekend right, you too thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the addictive pod as always please follow and like the podcast leave a review it really helps us to build this community and check out nick's pages if you guys got anything out of his talk be sure to check out his instagram he shares a lot of motivating stuff and uh, i also have the link to his website in the description it's ift180.com this is where you can get in touch with him about the fitness and nutrition even if you're not in missouri he offers a lot of online options and i'm sure that you guys are going to want to check him out it's been an absolute pleasure hosting this show Keep an eye out for the next episode coming out next week. And as always, remember that we recover together. 